There's also a really big clean energy footprint in red states. And indeed, actually, clean energy is more distributed geographically across the country than is fossil energy. So you have a fairly pronounced red state footprint. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we welcome back to the show Kevin Book to look ahead at the U.S. midterm elections and what energy issues are at play. Kevin is Managing Director at Clearview Energy Partners, a keen observer of energy markets in U.S. politics, as well as a senior associate here with our program. With rising gasoline prices and power prices, Kevin joins Joseph Micah to discuss whether this election can be seen as an energy election and whether this is a referendum on the Biden administration's climate and energy policy. They give context to what's at stake in the election outcomes and the future of the U.S. energy and climate agenda. Here's Joseph to start the discussion. Kevin, I'm very excited to talk to you today. We are looking at the month of August, then September, then October, and then there's a big political event here in the United States. And I wanted to talk to you about how you are thinking about the midterm election, what role you think energy is going to play in the campaigns and in the election itself, and then a little bit maybe about for the various scenarios that we might see arise, what could this mean for energy and climate policy here in the United States? So thank you for joining us and good morning. Joseph, it's great to be here. You know, we we talk about elections in energy with a threshold question. And that question is, is this an energy election? And that's really just a, a, a nice way of saying our gasoline prices or energy prices so high that it's an issue that nobody can avoid. If you go back to 2008, it was exactly then uh, that we saw drill baby drill and policy responses to high prices that became a prominent part of the discourse. And really, we argued that the 2020 election wasn't an energy election per se. Actually, prices were quite low. Now, climate policy featured very prominently in the election. And arguably, had it not been for very low gasoline prices, it might have been impossible for President Biden to campaign and win on the green platform that he brought. He might have freaked out voters who thought this is going to get too expensive. Well, they're freaked out now. Uh, and we can see that that's had implications for climate policy. The question is, what does that high price do for a midterm congressional election? Now, the, uh, the other part of this energy election stuff, when we bring it up, is usually that we're talking about a presidential year most of the time, where there's a pronounced, a dramatic, I think statistically meaningful inverse correlation between presidential approval ratings, going back to the first Reagan term, uh, and, and real pump prices. It's a negative 0.5 correlation in our data set. And if we look at the, the Biden term, he's actually running at about a negative 0.7. So uh, and intuitively, this isn't too hard to figure out. You know, if you buy gasoline a lot and you see the price a lot, you get upset a lot. If it's cannibalizing other spending you might want to do or putting pressure on, on households that are frail. And it's natural human inclination to say, well, maybe what we've got in government isn't working. Maybe we need something different. So to some extent, this election then becomes a, a dual referendum on the president uh, because of energy. It's a, it's a referendum on the high prices and the production policy of the president being brought to bear on the congressional midterms and also his climate policy. So yes, this is an energy election. So we're recording uh, here at the end of July. And one of the things that we've just witnessed is the failure of the president and the Democratic Senate to pass a budget bill that includes a lot of climate provisions in the form of clean energy tax credits and other measures that would have delivered for the green constituency that backed the president. Do you think that that failure causes a challenge for the Democratic case for the, keeping them in government? 
Well, the question is, which Democrats are going to be upset by this? And obviously, the progressives who signed on for the green agenda are extremely disappointed. And they made that very clear. Uh, they're also extremely disappointed with energy Chairman Manchin uh, in the Senate, who is being blamed for this, although arguably, you know, a matter of managing expectations and, and realistically getting any bill through a narrowly divided Senate at this scale was a, was a pretty big lift. And so the, the idea that it was going to be a, a layup probably uh, oversold some folks who now are feeling just a little bit disappointed for that reason. But in terms of voters, you know, voters energized by the, the climate issue will come out to the polls if they think that they can make a difference. I think that's a, a good sort of empirical data point we can look at because we saw it in 2020. The question is, will they not come out now because they think that it's just too late? There's no chance to save the Congress. There's nothing that can be done. Or will they come out to try to protect the president's agenda? There's an incredibly important thing that can happen for the climate policy issue uh, in the very near term if the Senate stays Democrat after the midterms, because right now, if the Senate's going to flip as well as the House, which looks very much like it's going to flip, then Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has to try to get as many of the president's nominees confirmed for judicial and administration posts as possible before time runs out, because a Republican-controlled Senate isn't going to be particularly amenable to that. That means that there isn't time for another reconciliation bill after the, the one they're using for Medicare and for drug pricing uh, is, is used up or after whatever gambit they decide to do if they change their mind expires on September 30th. But if they win in November, on November 8th, then November 9th is a day when they say, wait, we have a chance at this because we will have all of the next two years to confirm, folks. Let's do the 40 hours of time on the Senate floor needed to tee up the budget resolution. Let's go through that process. And then let's use the 20 hours to finish it up as a reconciliation bill. That will suddenly make sense or at least seem feasible. So would voters be animated by that? Well, look how long it took me to say that to you. It's not exactly a campaign pitch. So, I mean, this seems like one of the challenges, right, to even think about outcomes for this election where you've got a variety coming off the Supreme Court rulings across a variety of issues, social issues, abortion and, and other items. I wonder how much the historical correlation of gas prices and energy prices on approval ratings are going to matter. Do you, have a, do you have any thoughts on kind of existing in an out of sample world or should we think, think about fundamentals here? Well, again, uh, applying sort of a, a presidential axiom to a congressional election is probably also something of a mistake. If you look at the clear view, we, we don't pretend to be political prognosticators. We, mm -hmm. uh, we take as an input the Cook Political Reports assessment. Right. And if you sort of just run the numbers, we do apply our own analysis of their analysis. Uh, and right. so, you know, you take the toss ups and you evenly split them and assign the leans and net them out uh, and the likelies and you come up with a number. It's like a, essentially a net gain of 21 seats for Republicans in the House. And if that's off by five or six, it's still enough to make the difference in the, you know, the 221 to 210 circumstance they find themselves in now. So that's easy. The question is, what about the Senate? And now suddenly the, the issue gets much, much more complicated. <laughs> First of all, the, if, you, if you run the same analysis, you sort of assign the, the likelies and the leans and you divide the toss-ups, it implies a, a gain of one Republican seat and a Republican Senate. But some of those seats are vacancies that the incumbents have left right, in really critical states, actually energy states like Pennsylvania, you know, that uh, the idea that you don't know what's going to happen in a toss-up when it's uh, an unknown, unproven candidate is a, is makes things much more mysterious and harder to predict. And so I'm not sure you want to rely on that plus one R. 
Uh, and actually, the, the prospect that some of the, the states that Republicans might have been able to pick up could be complicated by candidates that I think Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell might describe as less attractive to general election uh, voters. That that really presents a problem to that analysis, too. So I think that there's a lot more going on than gasoline prices. Yeah. But when you do look at it, so having said all that, let's do two things. Let's ask about the price at the pump and the price in the tank. So Pennsylvania is a heating oil state, a big one, big time. And so is New Hampshire, mm-hmm. right? So you have a Republican Senate seat right now in Pennsylvania that could go Democrat, but might not because of the heating oil price. Pennsylvania is not a big gasoline consuming state. Uh, relatively speaking, the household consumption is, is below the national average per capita. And the impact on income is even lower because it's actually a fairly high income state. Mm-hmm. New Hampshire is the opposite, though. New Hampshire is a, is a big gasoline consuming and home heating state where it's a Democratic incumbent. Right. So it's a big factor. And then if you, you ask, well, so what else? You know, what else on this gasoline front? Well, North Carolina is a pretty big gasoline consuming state as well. And uh, now you have questions about whether or not there's there's really an opportunity for a Democrat pickup there. And uh, that does factor in. I think that, uh, again, it, there are going to be idiosyncratic factors that may get ahead of energy in some of these Senate races, but it's surely going to be on voters' minds. Well, and in the extent that all politics is local, especially as you look at Pennsylvania, I you might even bucket Ohio in there, though that doesn't appear to be as close. The overwhelming sense that the president and the Democratic and his Democratic allies are against production or have a climate agenda that's going to, to exclude economic development or not respond to just global energy prices does seem like it's a challenge at the moment. Do you see those dynamics playing out in, in any particular way? Well, on the production side, Colorado comes to mind, right? It's a very big producing state. And Michael Bennett is looking like he's ahead right now in the polls and has a chance of retaining his Senate seat, Democrat from, from Colorado. And uh, he has not exactly taken the, the pro-industry line all the way through and through. Uh, he's leaned green on a lot of key issues so far, and it may not hurt him there, right, even though it's a big producing state. And part of the issue, I think, is when you get down to the, the share of GDP that comes from the upstream and extractive industry. Now, it's still pretty high in Colorado to about two and a half percent in 2020, which is the most recent year. And it's about the same in Pennsylvania, right? Big gas producing state. But it's well below some of the, the red producer states, mm-hmm. you know, the, the double digits you see in Alaska or Wyoming and the very high single digits to low double digits that you'll see in Texas and Louisiana, depending on the year and, and which categories of upstream production and, and fossil energy you're counting. And so the the idea that, that there's a uh, a green agenda that's hurting a producer state is meaningful in those two races especially, but maybe less so in the more widely diversified, less producer-centric mm-hmm. economy. So Ohio would be the other one that I think you know fits into that at least a little bit. And Ohio's not, I mean, it's about one and a half percent upstream extractive and fossil if you sort of group it all together, but that's that's not a lot. That's about the national average. You mean within the state's GDP? Within the state GDP, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's think a little bit about the challenges we face as a country. We've got very high global energy prices. The U.S. has made a political priority, and it feels like this is still very bipartisan, to support Europe as it diversifies away from Russian energy dependence, particularly on natural gas. Climate is increasingly something that people and voters want to see addressed, but how they want to see it addressed is is a big question. When you think about those different areas, do you see interesting ideas popping up in terms of campaigns or rhetoric? Or 
are we kind of going to be back in an entrenched battle of we need to emphasize climate and or we need to stop the war on American energy? Well, there's there's a lot in that question. So maybe I'll, I'll cover first the energy war part, right? We're, we're in a circumstance where Europe is in an energy war and the United States is a strong supporting player, shipping natural gas across the ocean. The oil price is affecting the United States uh, and there's voters who are probably going to say, well, this isn't our war. Now, the president's pitch is that it is. This is a global fight of democracy versus autocracy. And this is the shape of the world for the next you know, decades to centuries. So this is our fight, sort of, mostly, except not a declared war from Congress and not actually a war. You know, voters do not tend to look that way on these issues when they think about the pocketbook side of things. Uh, and so when we have disposable personal income, falling on a real basis because of inflation and the end of a lot of the COVID era supports. You're starting to see, I think, real energy pressure on households that just doesn't provide a lot of sympathy to this like energy warrior, arsenal of energy type talk. They just want prices to be cheaper. And I think the White House certainly understands that. But for candidates, that doesn't give them a lot of options. They can basically say, we, we support things like gasoline tax holidays, which sound like instant money and good news to voters. Well, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire has been one of the proponents of that for months now, four, four months ago, five months ago, uh, she was pitching this, looking at a close race and quite worried, especially when it looked like she would have a formidable Republican challenger. And, uh, you know, these are the kinds of options that are coming up. As policy solutions, they may not really be the stuff that I think, Joseph, your team here focuses on so much and looks at in depth because these are ephemeral sort of political red meat. Uh, not the substance of an enduring transition. Uh, but there, there is a second part to this question, which is, you know, if you look at the last election, there was a calcification and polarization of energy politics. It suddenly became the case that Republicans were the party of fossil energy and Democrats were the party of transition. Uh, now, there are a lot of blue states that have green leanings. That's certainly been true for some time. But there's also a really big clean energy footprint in red states. And indeed, actually, clean energy is more distributed geographically across the country than is fossil energy. So you have a fairly pronounced red state footprint. You know, if you look at the states that voted for Trump on a popular basis in, in 2020, and you look at the EIA state energy data uh, system data set, and you ask, well, what is the onshore fossil share? It's been falling for about the last decade, but it's still about 70% Trump state, you know, producing. But that those Trump states now are also about 50%. They've gone up from about 35% to 50% of what they call non-combustion renewable energy. So think of it as green power uh, on, a, on a national footprint. And if you say, okay, well, wait a second, but that's not exactly how these states work because their policies, we ask, what are the impacts of the leadership? You know, locally, it's the governors and the legislatures that are making these decisions. So what about the, the, the states that are all red or all blue? And if we look at the all red states, you know, they, they have actually a rising fossil energy share. And over time, it's it's been growing as they've been more pr prolific in producing. Mm -hmm. And uh, and it's also the case that they have a rising green energy share. They're just energy states writ large. Yep. But uh, I don't think we're at the point yet where you're going to see a lot of Republicans from producer states uh, campaigning to say, we need to green up. What you will see are Republicans from less prolific producer states starting to talk about green energy because it's their business too. Now, in the campaign, I don't know that we're there yet. That may be once they're in office. In the campaign, I think we're still hewing to the battle lines that were etched in the, the very galvanizing events of the 2020 election and its aftermath. Yeah, I hear that. I mean, you mentioned earlier in 2008, another period of high energy prices, drill, baby, drill, is such an easy slogan. And you wonder if 
we sort of did that, right? Over the last decade, the U.S. drilled a lot, and we developed a lot of production uh, across the country for both natural gas and oil. So now the question is, and I, I ask your personal opinion, do you think build, baby, build across all types of energy becomes something that would be saleable? All of the above, which was an Obama-era slogan that came right after that election, uh, grows very well in the fertile soil of not enough. Right. right. So global shortage is doing a lot, I think, to, to focus the mind. Uh, and as we're looking at the country right now, one of the things that you can see, there's some very nonpartisan elements in play, like fires and floods. They don't care what's on your voter registration card. And for that matter, when you go to the gasoline pump, it's not your voter registration card that you put in. Uh, if you ask, like, you know, do the sun and the wind care what party you're in? They don't. Right. These resources have never belonged to parties and neither do the oil bearing rocks beneath the soil. So there, there are some real dynamics here in terms of if you have a resource, it's in your economic interest. Those those factors have always been there. But if you have a risk, a climate risk, it's in your economic interest to mitigate that. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the, the coastal producer states, Louisiana is a very good example. Not exactly on the bubble, not a close election state, not one of the dynamism uh, focal points of elections right now has right. been almost entirely red except for the governor. Uh, but the, the state is very focused on the environmental consequences of climate change even if they don't use those words. And if you look at Texas, Texas, again, uh, it, bluing, getting bluer, purpling up a bit uh, in places, uh, pockets of blue in the city, big ones. Uh, but in terms of what it's facing, some of, some of the risks it's facing right now from heat, stressing the grid, from extreme winter weather, stressing the grid, this is the stuff of, of climate change adaptation and mitigation that really, I think, is, is starting to percolate in. Now, what they call it and how they approach it may be very different from how it how it sounds in, in Sacramento or, or in Albany, but it's still a lot of the same, same questions that are getting some of the same answers. Yeah, I actually wonder if that is a case where energy elections will arise for entirely new reasons outside of gas prices, which is resilience, right? Which is a matter of electricity market design and the, what the interventions that the governor of Texas, in this case, because of its island electricity grid, is willing to make. It's something probably for our, our listeners to watch out for, even though I personally doubt it's going to be a dispositive part of the election this year in Texas. No, I don't think it will. I mean, again, the issue isn't being framed as a climate issue. It's being framed as an economic one. Energy didn't show up when voters needed it. Right. Well, and, and that actually gets to a point I wanted to talk about today, which is delivery, right? Over the past few years, the government has promised a lot. We've seen successful government interventions. The creation of the coronavirus vaccines is sort of a leading example. And in energy policy, and to some extent in climate policy, you get the sense that the, you know, people want to see more out of the government, but the government has a hard time delivering. And in particular, I, I think about the infrastructure package, which did pass on a bipartisan basis. And the Congress set up a lot of interesting things for energy transition, investment around the country in hydrogen, direct air capture of carbon, pipeline infrastructure, EV infrastructure. Is delivering on the promises of the infrastructure bill a way to demonstrate to not red, blue, not red voters, not blue voters, but to Americans generally that interventions can work and can provide benefits? 
I think it is, but I don't know that that's how it's being used. So, uh, you know, as you say, we're having this discussion on July 21st. Uh, on July 20th, President Biden was in Somerset, Massachusetts, at the site of a former coal-fired power plant that has been turned into a factory for undersea wind cables or sea bottom wind cables. Uh, and uh, it is also a place where he talked about using $2.3 billion of the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act spending to harden communities, including environmental justice communities, against the effects of, of climate change. He's putting his signature, in short, on the bipartisan bill and saying, look at what I did for you. To the extent that the, the issue has become a political tool for the incumbent president uh, and his party to try to say, look at what we've done to succeed, I think that it, it loses some of its appeal in the sort of generic sense that you presented it. The American people are actually looking for their government to do things. That much is clear. There's a lot of clamoring for, for sort of breaking down the barriers to doing things that the framers, rightly or wrongly, and you know some of us would say rightly, erected. Uh, we wrote a report in 2019 called Swipe Right for a Green New Deal. And what it essentially posited was that technology's made us all speed up. You know, I can get a pizza almost instantly now and I can get I can get complicated electronic devices from Amazon the same afternoon. So why does it take Congress so many years to pass anything? Why can't the government deliver? That popular appetite for just doing things and the fact that a lot of our elected officials are now outside their congressional district boundaries on Twitter with millions of followers rather than the 800,000 or so apportioned to them by the census. Right. That things have gotten sort of outside the, the linear and hierarchical. And uh, and I think voters are are hungering for stuff to get done because everything else is getting done. The problem, of course, is that doing things right sometimes takes a long time. Uh, and uh, the process that was set up to go and reach a consensus that can endure the throes of partisan swings back and forth. Well, breaking down that process probably doesn't help. And so what is what is happening now is the sense of, of single party intervention to get it done. And in fact, that's the spirit of using the 74 Congressional Budget Act and its reconciliation process to put things through in a filibuster-proof way so that they can get past this agreement across party lines. The question is, what can we agree on across party lines besides the infrastructure that happened? And I think this is an issue dear to your heart. I think there's one thing, which is we're all pretty protectionist in America, really in the world right now, uh, which means that there's room for the next Congress, even if it's divided government, to talk about, drumroll please, carbon border adjustments. <laughs> well, I want to get to carbon border adjustments, and I am going to object to their characterization as protectionist. But I want to first talk a little bit about our modal expectation, right? So next year, you mentioned the Cook Report. I was on 538 this morning. It seems like we should roughly expect some sort of mixed governance scenario, Republican leadership taking the House, maybe the Senate, but probably again in a very narrow way. And I'm interested what you think that means for the evolution of energy policy and, and the way that Congress and the president can work together. And then we'll talk border adjustment. Okay, and I'll explain why I use the P word, protectionist. <laughs> so the uh, the mixed government scenario gives Republicans a check on the executive authority, even if they only have the House, uh, because they can threaten to shut down government if they don't like what the executive is doing. And that doesn't mean the executive won't try to do it. It's a staring contest, and it's not always clear who wins when there's a shutdown. So the scenario where, in essence, the Republicans win one chamber at least, and particularly if they win both, is that there's a rush for confirmations. But there might also be room immediately after the election for Republicans to get a 
tax extenders bill done. Mm -hmm. And the reason to do that would not necessarily be because they want to serve a green agenda, but more that they want to serve their own tax extension goals so they can spend the next two years saying no and uh, to actually get the deck clear for the legislative agenda that they do want to prosecute or inhibit and to spend a lot of their time probably on oversight and uh, and slowing things down that they don't like as they look to try to put a Republican in the White House for 2024. So in, in a mixed government scenario, sort of in the immediate term, you do have sort of a foreground legislative outcome that could create new momentum for energy and energy policy. But in terms of what happens in the, in the years that follow in that mixed government scenario, it's the executive on its own. Uh, and and as you mentioned in the wake of, of West Virginia versus EPA, it's probably going to be a harder regulatory slog. But this is where the presidential, what we call superpowers, including emergency declarations, probably come to the fore. At this point, you have a president who will be saying, well, what can I do and how quickly can I do it? And with some of that barrier busting enthusiasm that the Sunrise Movement and the youthful climate advocates brought to the 2020 election, still out there, out there up for grabs, the president has an incentive to move to try to put Democrats in good position for 2024. And now you, you get potentially a lot of new things that you might not have expected, some of which I can't even conceive of yet, but a climate emergency that also, in addition to greening up, mm -hmm. which is what could happen if they did it today, adding green energy doesn't necessarily compromise fossil energy interests, at least not directly, but uh, actively going after fossil energy production in that climate emergency. That kind of thing becomes possible. The opening of federal lands to wind and solar while closing them to fossil production, another superpower, almost certain to happen on the executive front in this mixed governance scenario, uh, is already happening. So why wouldn't it continue? It's still further binding the US in international treaties and alignments. Well, you can't get a treaty through the Congress in a mixed governance scenario, but you can make a lot of commitments that start to become real problems for the next administration if they're entered into with sincerity and belief on both sides. And so this means that some of the allied commitments on climate could start to really ramp up. And that'll be interesting as well. Again, I'm not diving into border adjustments yet, but the, we did modify the Section 232 tariffs for uh -huh. steel in 2023. We're supposed to have agreement with the EU on how that's going to work to be climate adjusting steel imports and also excess capacity modifying them. So a lot of these sort of trade-based initiatives that are also in the presidential purview still reside with in presidential power, a reason to go in a mixed government scenario. And finally, there's the convening power the White House has over the blue states, right, which is, is one of the underappreciated superpowers. Actually, the, the ability to get all the blue states to march together, they wouldn't necessarily do it on their own. Uh, in the person of Ali Zaidi, the deputy climate uh, director in the White House, and also Gina McCarthy, the director, both strong ties to state government in their past. Mm -hmm. Looks like they're doing it already and ramping up to do it in the, in the coming years. So, you know, you mentioned the issue of federal lands management. That's a place where the executive branch in the U.S. has quite a bit of authority and probably could use it more extensively. But it also could be places where maybe I'm a optimistic or a hopeless optimist, but maybe we would see stuff that would be agreeable to Republicans, like the development of mineral resources in the United States off federal land that has henceforth been hard to do. But we know we need this for energy transition. We know we need it to diversify supply chains away from China. Are those areas where you think you might see progress or do you see the, a retrenchment to instead? Well, it would eliminate at least one act of oversight in doing so, which is that if, House, if the House 
goes Republican, then current Natural Resources Chairman Raul Grijalva, who's been a, a critic, Democrat from, from Arizona, critic of the idea of exploiting mineral resources because of the potential environmental consequences, he would no longer be in the position to convene hearings to get the administration before them to, to criticize the moves. But the question, I think, is really whether there's appetite to go that far. Mm-hmm. You know, the D- Defense Production Act interventions, which are pretty muscular tools to use for this purpose, both solar manufacturing and metals and minerals production and refining, those are those are all potentially very big parts of a transition agenda. And in some cases, I do believe Republicans would support this. This is exactly the sort of thing that they, they might be looking for, the opportunity to create and build industry. And in this case, the, the Republican brand is actually the sort of thing that the industry would want. It may be clean energy that you're talking about, but lower tax rates, faster permitting, more accessible labor regulation. These are the kinds of things that Republicans have been selling to industry for years, and green industry might want it as well. But the question is whether it could be delivered. And again, the the environmental agenda is a complex one. You know, as much as we talk about this idea of transition and getting into electrification inside our borders, the question of where those materials come from and on what terms they're produced is going to get ever larger. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, the, o- the only thing I noticed when you I was reading this morning the House uh, Republican platform for climate, energy, and conservation, and they, they've got seven items. It's released earlier this year as sort of the Republican response to the president's agenda. Item number one is unlock American resources. And so as an optimist, I'm always trying to think of, okay, well, what are interesting ways that we can unlock American resources to the benefit of energy security abroad, whether that might be natural gas or the benefit of the energy transition, and that might be minerals. If we can have an, an interesting national dialogue about that, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Well, you're in a position to convene it, so hopefully it will happen. <laughs> well, we'll try. You mentioned border adjustment as something that is plausibly bipartisan and something that we might see more energy around in the next few years. For our audience who might be unfamiliar, what is the context in which you think a border adjustment could arise? So let me go back to what I said about protectionism. I'm not saying that the border adjustment is protectionist, although uh, I will say that it seems to have momentum from the protectionist sentiment that we have had growing, I would argue, because of fiscal stimulus, fiscal interventions. You spend tomorrow's money on yesterday's factories, you're going to protect those factories. And so the Great Recession was, you know, medium single digit trillions of dollars in the G20 in fiscal stimulus. And we saw a wave of trade war that followed. Mm -hmm. And we've had something like four or five times that amount, depending on how you count and who you count, uh, in fiscal stimulus for COVID. What do you think is going to happen? So the EU has already made a definitive move with the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Uh, There's precedent here. In 2000 and 2002, the US lost trade cases before the WTO. And uh, in 2004, in March, the European Union decided that they would essentially assess penalties for our violations under uh, our extraterritorial income tax law and foreign sales corporation law laws were the things at, at issue. And they basically said, we're going to start at 5% on duties on manufactured goods, raising 1% a month. Well, in October of 2004, which happened to be an election year, the American Jobs Creation Act passed and created the now defunct Section 199 deduction in place of some of the other tax credits that were found objectionable before the WTO. Well, it may turn out that the same mechanism at work there, Main Street saying to Washington, hey, we just want to sell stuff. Can you fix this? Could be a response to the imminent carbon border adjustment. Even if the European Union isn't actively assessing duties right away, the prospect that they could could begin to have effects. And moreover, I think it's pretty clear that if if you look at that underlying protectionist sentiment, there's truly this sense that 
we are now in a post-globalization world, and we can't rely on globally sourced resources in place of domestic manufacturing. We can't have lean inventories as once we had them because we can't rely on them. We have to onshore, reshore, friendshore, whatever you want to call it. We need more manufacturing in places that we can count on. And that is likely going to bring this issue into the fore as well, because as we bring manufacturing home, the country is going to ask, well, okay, now that we've done this, we lost this manufacturing because we couldn't compete before. How do we compete now? And uh, I won't use the P word, but there are mechanisms in place to equilibrate the cost of doing business in the United States against a lower cost of doing business overseas. And equilibration via border adjustment is one way to do it. And it turns out that the lower carbon intensity of domestic steel and other metals and, he and heavy industry, as well as our grid relative to other grids, uh, is truly an advantage in that context. And one of the big sticking points when we talk about border adjustment is that in Europe, they're creating a border adjustment which is backed and meant to adjust for the European cap and trade system, right? So there's a domestic policy that the border adjustment is trying to prevent leakage, which is the path to WTO compliance, right? The political way of saying prevent leakage is keep jobs in Europe. In the US, we don't have a national climate policy. We don't have a carbon price. And so one of the big challenges as politicians and policymakers look at border adjustment is what to do domestically that makes this either something that can appeal to the WTO or meet their needs or not and say, we're going to border adjust and the WTO can deal with it. We'll see you in court. What's your view on that dynamic? Well, again, I think we could point to the modification of President Trump's Section 232 credits on steel and aluminum. All right. We had an October with agreement with the, the EU, a March agreement with Japan, a May agreement with the UK. All of them basically said, you know, for steel at least, and then some of them also aluminum, we're going to look at the carbon intensity and we're going to adjust. Well, guess what? That because there was a tariff, an ad valorem tariff under those Trump era regimes in place, because it's being repurposed to consider carbon intensity, although we don't know how, that is already creating the synthetic price on carbon mm -hmm. at the border that is ultra WTO compliant. Because Section 232 is the embodiment of the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, Article 21 exception for national security. So uh, in essence, there is a way. Now, I'm not sure, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, no one at Clearview, even those who are lawyers, is a practicing one. So I don't purport to know how it could be done legally and compliant with the WTO. But that also gets to your second question. In a post-globalist world, the artifacts of globalization, the cross-border investment thesis, not the, the ideological belief in a, in a unified, a trade unified world, but the, the actual business of how you do this stuff may be breaking down rather severely. I know there are scholars here at CSIS uh, who have differing views on this, but I, I would suggest that maybe we just sort of say, well, WTO, so what? It hasn't necessarily worked in the eyes of the American people the way I think the aspirational goals of the 1990s laid it out to be. And as analysts, I mean, we have to I think we have to recognize plainly that WTO compliance is less and less of a driving factor for policymakers. If you look at the tax credits that were in the clean energy package over the summer, the Democrats were trying to pass. There was flagrant anti you know, domestic materials requirements that we know are flagrantly in violation of WTO rules. And that was something they were willing to support. <laughs> really a big point, Joseph, and a good one. And it's really, it can't be overstated. Like, again, where are we right now in our in our global framework for trade? You know, one of the, the strongest alliances that we've had in the history of, of energy and trade globalization that affects energy is what was NAFTA, the USMCA now, breaking down before our eyes 
right? Mexico has no problem, it seems, doing its own thing, irrespective of what Canada and the US want. You know, if we can't even get things to work inside of global trade frameworks with our nearest and dearest neighbors, then how across oceans and across the vastness of the world should we be expecting this to work? Now, I personally, I'm still a globalist dinosaur. And, uh, you know, as a person, this isn't necessarily the outcome I want. But as I think there's efficiency to be had through trade, and then we'll find that when we build these domestic capacities to manufacture, we're going to be over capacity. Now, for energy, it's bullish in the near term to do this because you're going to have all this new capacity that's going to need to be energized and constructed even before that. So that's the good news, at least for energy. The bad news is that overcapacity means slower growth and inefficiency. It means less growth rate relative to trend you otherwise could have had. But in any case, the, the politics of this, the politics of this are spot on right now. The, the American people are not calling for a global world. Uh, we can see that. Maybe in at some future point, it, it swings back the other way. But the appeal, the labor-friendly green jobs appeal that the Democrats, the pitch they were making, that's not that different from the pitch that the Trump administration was making. Mm-hmm. A lot of this, this sort of green protection stuff started with the safeguard tariffs that the Trump administration put in place the presidential safeguard tariffs, the Section 201 tariffs that happened on solar products uh, during the Trump era. So uh, I think you can say that with some some seriousness, it may not matter. So I also think there's an interesting split between how policymakers want to talk about border adjustment. I think I agree there is a protectionist impulse that they're trying to satisfy, but I, I would also characterize one as being a strategic impulse. It's not necessarily about just onshoring jobs, but it's about competing in international markets with Russia and and China. And so and in the energy space in particular, the case that policymakers want to make is that US LNG U.S. oil production and exports are cleaner on an emissions intensity basis than almost any other resource in the world. As an analyst, how do you look at that argument? And and if policymakers want to make it, what do they actually have to show? Well, first of all, we've we've written a lot about that very argument being made as a justification for LNG exports to regulated markets. And the question is very clear. It's something you're going to have to prove. You're going to have to show Mm -hmm. the data in a verifiable way. And it's going to have to be something that's believable to the buyers and also consistent across the different monitoring zones where you're going to be monitoring, both uh, from space, from the sky, from the ground. There's a lot of work to be done, particularly on LNG, to deliver that result in a satisfying way. Now, the buyers right now, particularly in Europe, may be a little bit more accommodating. Uh, They may not be checking the pedigree of every molecule as they might have. I think it's safe to say that a rail polity is taken over in in that respect, and rightly so. Uh, But in the long term, these sorts of controls, they're something that I think are really going to matter for market access for the U.S. as we look to send our molecules overseas. Uh, And uh, we thought that for some time, there's another step along the way, which is creating a a federal regulation that that industry can endorse, or at least endure, that is helping to give that that imprimatur of greenness to those regulated markets. So one one of the problems is if you can't make the case, or if the buyer doesn't believe the case is strong enough, particularly in Europe, they they will fall back on the, the weakest of their own products uh, and say, well, this is this is the emissions profile we'll assign you. And it's not a flattering profile. It's not one you'd want to you'd want to claim on your own. Uh, and so uh, if you can't have good data, you can have good enough data with good regulation. And there is actually some room for this to be positive for industry and not negative. Of course, a lot of this depends on how it's executed and delivered. Not everyone is going to win and not everyone, therefore, is going to agree. 
But you can imagine an iterative path where whether or not we stand up a border adjustment next year, there's a lot more attention paid to carbon intensity of production here in the United States. The European CBAM doesn't have oil and natural gas covered at the moment, but we expect that to happen over time. As do we. And so the idea that we're going to start improving our monitoring and verification, that this is something that the feds and private firms like you and, and nonprofits like us start thinking about and publishing different indices and comparing them, I see that as a growth area of analysis over the next few years as prelude to more and more of these trade instruments being set up. Let me challenge one thing you just said, though. They do not explicitly regulate oil and gas. That much is true. But embedded in their own baselines and therefore the competitive protection that they have is the oil and gas emissions profile that goes into the industrial production in Europe. And so that means they have to watch what they eat, if you will. And that ultimately does bear on the emissions profile of imported oil and gas. So we, I mean, and the same thing sort of happens here, right? One of the carbon efficiency of our production is largely a natural gas question, right? And so here I am. I, I realize what I've done here is that I've, I've undercut your original goal, which was to talk about elections and to take you back to a place where you're extremely uh, knowledgeable and, and gifted in being able to analyze this. And you're absolutely right, of course. But I also want to be clear that I think that the administration is already doing this in some respects with metals, showing the path for how it could be done without an explicit price on carbon for other things. And so when we ask what could Republicans and Democrats agree on in a mixed government scenario, this is one of the things that we think is possible. Right. I, I actually completely agree. We've heard the same thing from policymakers on both sides of the aisle. For us, it's a matter of figuring out how can we help them work out the details. We're running up on time. Kevin, I want to thank you and offer you the chance for a last word. If there's anything we've missed as you're thinking about the midterms, I, I always appreciate your perspective. There are some questions about where this election takes us in terms of predictive value for the presidential election. And so, uh, you know, I, we are not, again, we're not political prognosticators by trade. We do pay attention to what they say. Several of the Senate candidates that have been backed by former President Trump are being regarded as proxies for his potential influence within the party, particularly as the January 6th commission raises questions that may be vexing to some of the Republicans otherwise inclined to back him. The one interesting part is that Trump may declare his presidential entry into the race before the midterm elections, which could exert undue skew, and I'm not sure which direction yet, on the outcomes of these races. And so uh, it's an unusual variable to have a, a president who can be so polarizing also become a candidate so early really changes the game. And it puts a very humbling veneer on what was already a very difficult problem to analyze. Kevin, uh, thank you again for joining us. And we look forward to breaking down the results of the midterm election with you and diving again into its implications for energy and climate change, hopefully this fall. Thanks to Kevin and Joseph for today's discussion. We'll be sure to check back in after the elections in November. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.